It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. We're following the recent media reporting about uh, these alleged cases of fraud and corruption uh, very closely. And these allegations are very concerning uh, and give rise to questions regarding the compliance with... Uh, that was Anita Hipper, spokesperson for the European Commission, responding to a question about a scandal that has erupted in Poland just weeks before crucial parliamentary elections. It's about migration and a bribery scandal involving the granting of visas to possibly tens of thousands of people from Asia and Africa who came to Poland and then travelled freely throughout Europe and even as far as the United States. In one instance, a group of migrants who had said they were Bollywood filmmakers applied for Polish visas, but as the online platform Onet revealed, when they showed up at the Mexican-US border, it emerged that most of them had no experience in filmmaking. I'm Suzanne Lynch, host of EU Confidential. Today we're going to hear more about the scandal that has rocked Poland ahead of parliamentary elections next month with our political colleagues. And later, I chat with Hans Konani of Chatham House about his new book, Eurowhiteness, Culture, Empire and Race in the European Project. So stay tuned for that. But first, let's turn to our podcast panel. So great to be joined here in studio by Jan Jenski, our senior policy editor. Hi. Hi, great to have you, Jan. And Hans van der Berchard, senior politics reporter for Politico in Berlin. Hi there, Hans. Hello, guten Tag. Good to have you too. Jan, starting with you, can you explain, there has been uh, this really remarkable story about a visa bribery scheme that's exploded in Poland over the last couple of weeks. Fill us in on what's been happening. Yeah, it's a huge embarrassment for the government. Basically, the government was, like many European governments, outsourced a lot of the visa processing jobs to external companies. It appears that some of the visas were being, that people were allowed to skip the line and actually getting to the point of being granted work visas in Poland for bribes. The talk is of about $5,000 to arrange a visa. What's not very well known is how many visas were issued like this. The government says it was a couple of hundred, that they, were, that they knew about this from last year, and that they've been on the case and trying to nail this down. The opposition uh, says that the, the numbers are much, much higher, and that it was an actual active trade in Polish work visas. So there's that issue. On top of that, the Polish government is also the EU's largest issuer of uh, work visas, hundreds of thousands of work visas, a large number for Ukrainians and Belarusians, but also huge numbers for people from South Asian countries, uh, from uh, some African countries, uh, from some Asian countries as well. So the two are kind of interlinked in a sense that there's something seriously off with Poland's visa scheme. A lot of people are coming into Poland 
on terms they're supposed to stay in Poland and work. Many of them are not because it's the Schengen zone. So once you're in Poland, nothing stops you from going to Germany. And this is what's leading to the tensions with Germany. The Germans are saying, you are issuing wild numbers of visas. We're starting to see people show up in Germany with Polish work visas, and we want this stopped. It's even brought in the United States. The Americans, because Mexico has a deal if a person has a Schengen visa in their passport, they can come into Mexico. And so there are Georgians and other people showing up at the American border with Mexico with Polish Schengen visas in their passports and now trying to get into the United States. The Americans have complained to the Poles as well. So, And this comes from a government which is ostensibly anti-migrant, especially anti-migrant from Muslim countries and non-European countries. Uh, so it's huge embarrassment for the government just weeks before the uh, parliamentary election. Yeah, so a huge irony here that one of the countries leading the charge on this whole migration issue has found itself in the centre of a huge migration scandal itself involving visas, as you just explained. Now, the uh, Polish Prime Minister did move. He, He fired the Deputy Foreign Minister when this first broke. He fired the deputy foreign minister, several people, I think the last count was about seven people are facing charges or under arrest. So the numbers are still pretty small. As I said at the beginning, it's it's unclear just how many of these visas were flat out criminal bribes for visas and how many visas are just issued very loosely to people who haven't been properly checked and are coming in large numbers into the EU. But it is, the opposition is all over the government on this. It's The government is scrambling to put this uh, scandal behind them and, uh, you know, just weeks before polls uh, go to vote. And what's the argument of the government? Their argument is that the actual cash or bribes for visas scandal is very, very small. It's being dealt with by the uh, by the Polish authorities. And there's so there, there's nothing to worry about uh, on that side. And on the larger question of the number of work visas, they, they downplay the number of non-European visas issued. And they say that the big focus is uh, Ukrainians, Belarusians, people from former Soviet republics coming into Poland. Poland has a labor shortage. There's a, there's a dearth of young people uh, in Poland. And so this is needed for the, for the Polish economy. So the government is trying to sort of shift the focus of, of, of what's going on. So tell us, what has been the EU's response to this? I mean, this is really affecting the EU, the whole Schengen free movement zone, for example, the whole debate about migration that's happening at the moment. What has been the response from Brussels? The Commission has asked Warsaw to explain what's going on with the visas. The the, the polls did immediately respond with a not very explanatory explanation of uh, of what was going on with the visas. That did not pass muster with the Commission, and they want a much more detailed explanation of what is happening with uh, with the visas, both the general issuing of visas and any potential criminal activity around uh, around visa issuing. And of course, this is all happening at a time where migration issues are to the forefront in, in the European debate. Just this week, we saw Justice and Home Affairs ministers meeting. We've had a lot of pushback towards the EU's Tunisia deal, that's a migration deal that they signed with Tunisia to try and stem that flow of migrants. We also had Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, travelling to the Italian island of Lampedusa on the request of the Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni before she went to the UN last week. We have an obligation as part of the international community. We have fulfilled it in the past and we will do so today and in the future. But we will decide 
who comes to the European Union and under what circumstances, and not the smugglers and traffickers. So these migration issues are really front and centre in the EU ahead of not just the Polish elections in a few weeks, but those European elections that are coming down the track next year. Hans, to bring you in on this, so this this whole, we've got on the one hand this, this specific Polish scandal, but as Jan alluded to there, now Germany uh, has got involved with a German angle to this. Maybe bring us up to speed on that. Yeah, so I think what's really interesting here is, as Jan already mentioned, there's an election coming up in mid-October in a few weeks in Poland, but we also have elections in Germany. Um, Actually, a week before the Polish elections, uh, we have two important state elections in Germany, in uh, Bavaria and in the state of Hesse on October 8th. And um, the interesting thing is that the German interior minister is also running for the Social Democratic Party as the lead candidate in Hesse. And this all matters because um, there has been a lot of pressure now building up on the government, and especially on the interior minister, Nancy Faeser, to act amid this migration crisis. There is, on the one hand, the Visa scandal in Poland. But uh, if you look at the total numbers, uh, this has been like a few hundred people coming in with Polish work visas this year from Poland into Germany. And we don't even know if these visas have been, as Jan mentioned, maybe just loosely issued or whether they were part of this alleged bribery scandal. So, uh, But the bigger problem is that there are a lot of migrants now coming into Germany, especially through the Czech Republic and through Poland, because uh, the human traffickers have uh, changed their uh, classical route before they came more uh, through Italy and and, and, uh, Switzerland, perhaps, or Austria. And now they're going around and coming through the east. And uh, this is now, as I said, really piling up the pressure on the government, on the um, interior minister. And uh, so this week, the interior minister actually announced to impose uh, temporary border checks uh, at the German borders with Poland and the Czech Republic. Um, These are not full-fledged stationary border checks across the entire border, but more spot checks at selected border crossings. They can change from one day to another. They go to different border crossing. Uh, So uh, in other words, they're not closing down the border, but they're definitely uh, trying to crack down on the uh, human uh, traffickers and on the migrants. And um, it has to do with uh, the growing influx of migration seekers, but it also has to do with uh, the elections coming up in these two very important German states. I mean, Jan, are we back? This sounds like the COVID days, you know, borders being closed internally in in the EU, in, in the Schengen zone. I mean, is this allowed to happen? Uh, it is. I mean, there are, uh, as Hans was saying, this is not a COVID style border shutdown where you had dozens of kilometers of trucks. Uh, people weren't allowed across the border. This is this is sort of a much more light touch control. Germany has uh, sort of a light touch control on the border with Denmark. There's other EU countries that have similar systems in place. So the, the the idea is that if you are, you know, sort of driving your car across the border, you're very rarely going to be stopped and controlled. They're, they're designed to sort of filter it uh, more effectively. It does play into politics in Germany, as Hans was mentioning. It plays into politics in Poland. The Poles are also saying that they're going to uh, uh, impose border controls on their own side to stop uh, potential migrants uh, coming in from Germany. I don't can't imagine that there would be 
any migrants who would make that particular direction of journey. But it plays into the politics in uh, in mm. Poland. Uh, the Polish government has also been uh, accusing uh, Berlin of trying to interfere with the Polish election. Uh, the the law and justice government in Poland is worried uh, that any kind of border problem uh, will arouse uh, and annoy Poles who hugely value the open border Schengen system and that any any kind of complication could come back to hurt them. And of course, I mean, tensions between Poland and Germany have been there for some time. We had that controversy about the war reparations, for example, that very right wing government uh, that's in power in Poland kind of pushed that through. But Hans, maybe you could give us a sense of how big migration is as a political issue now in Germany. I mean, I think here in Brussels, we we know it's a big issue in certain countries. We think of Italy, we think of Greece, these countries that have been on the front line of migration. But this idea of secondary migration, the migrants who enter the EU at one point, but then end up in countries like Germany has been a problem. Is migration a really big political issue now in the country? It's becoming huge, a huge issue in Germany. There's a lot of pressure, as I mentioned before, in the government because um, people are saying it's just too many migrants. We're taking up too many. And especially a lot of asylum seekers, they don't want to stay in Greece or Italy or Poland. Uh, They're all trying to get into Germany. And um, a lot of uh, cities and um, uh, regional communes have been warning that they're actually at the limit because there's more than 100 people coming to smaller places uh, each day. So they're really saying we're at the limit. Uh, the opposition is, of course, pressing the government on that. And we're seeing a huge uh, rise of the far-right AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland in Germany. They've been going up from some 13% at the beginning of the year to now 21 or even 22%, depending on which poll you're looking and uh, the government parties, so the Social Democrats of Olaf Scholz, is actually falling behind the far-right party. And um, as Jan also just mentioned, I think this is very interesting, this conflict between uh, Germany and Poland that is heating up around this issue, um, because the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, uh, over the past weekend, while he was doing uh, campaign rallies in Bavaria and in Hesse to support his local SPD, uh, Social Democratic Party, candidates there, he accused Poland, uh, he really pointed the finger at this uh, visa scandal and uh, said this was one of the problems why Germany now needs to act and impose border controls. Of course, it is a bit of a stretch because, as I mentioned before, the numbers of actually people coming in through Poland with these visas from Polish authorities, those are just in the hundreds, and we're seeing thousands of people arriving every day. So it's just a very small item. But you see that also politics in Germany is really playing into this, and the German chancellor is now trying to use this to attack the Polish government. And he may also hold a grudge because the Poles have been for months or even years constantly attacking the German government and uh, now he's hitting back. So really an issue feeding into politics in both those neighbouring countries, Poland and Germany. Jan and Ham, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And we'll be following the story as it develops over the coming weeks. So check back in with us for that. Next up, our discussion with author Hans Kunnani. Stay with us. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. As we discussed earlier in the podcast, migration is becoming an increasingly important issue in national and European politics ahead of a series of key elections. We discussed this and the question of European identity more generally with our guest Hans Kuntanani. Hans, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Look, this is a really fascinating read and a very interesting interjection into debates about European identity. Maybe you'd start by telling us a little bit about your own background and why you decided to approach this topic. So I'm a Brit. I was born and grew up in, in London, but my father was Indian and my mother's Dutch. I mentioned that because I think that, you know, I do think that probably has influenced the way I think about Europe and in particular about my own sort of relationship with Europe, because I've always sort of had this feeling that I am, you know, partially European. I've never been able to think of myself as being completely European. I also think of myself as as, as partially Asian, I guess. Um, so I think I sort of look at Europe and the EU from this kind of insider-outsider position at the same time. Um, and then I guess the second thing to say is that, you know, I, I sort of, over the last sort of couple of decades, I suppose, been on a little bit of a, a sort of journey, I suppose. I, th- I used to think of myself as being pro-European, but I realised in retrospect that, that, I, that I didn't actually know that much about the European Union. I thought I did, but actually, I, I don't think in retrospect I did. And, and I started working for the European Council on Foreign Relations, uh, a European foreign policy think tank in 2009. To be honest, it was really only, you know, during the sort of six years or so that I worked there that I really started to understand the EU in greater depth. And I started to come to think that a lot of the things I thought I knew about the EU were wrong. And, in, you know, especially the, the history of the, the European Union that I'd been told was, in fact, a kind of a myth produced by the EU itself and by pro-Europeans. And so I started to rethink my relationship to or my attitude to the European Union. But then at the same time as that was happening, this is the sort of, you know, the few years after the beginning of the euro crisis in 2010. And it seemed to me also that the European Union was itself changing in some rather problematic ways against the background of its response to the to the euro crisis. So exploration of European identity is at the core of this book. You argue that Europe itself is a is an exclusive construct, one that is defined, like many identities, by the other and what's not European. Maybe you could give us some sense of, of that argument. Yes, and, and this in a way is a good example of, of what I just mentioned about the, 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 the sort of the myth of the European Union that's being created. And um, there's been a tendency by many people, by pro-Europeans, to think of the EU as an expression of cosmopolitanism, a, a cosmopolitan project. And in doing so, there's this tendency, I think, to sort of mistake Europe for the world, to kind of, you know, conflate Europe with the whole of the world, as if when, you know, European countries were integrating 
this tendency to sort of almost think that the whole world was integrating as opposed to just European countries. Um, and also to think that, you know, what was good for Europeans was automatically good for the rest of the whole of the world. I think it's fairly clear if you if you start to think about this, that actually the EU is not a cosmopolitan project because Europe is not the world. It's actually a regional project, which is, you know, so it's, it's not nationalism. It's different from nationalism because Europe is not a nation, at least not yet. And uh, but but because Europe's not the world, it's something in between the nation and the world, as it were. And it's 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 a region. Uh, so, it, you know, I think that means that it's actually quite analogous to, to nationalism, except on a larger continental scale. And, and part of the reason I think that's a useful way of thinking about it is what it means is that all of the, the resources that we have from the study of nationalism, we can kind of take those and apply those to regionalism which I think is is really helpful. And in particular, I think it's helpful in terms of breaking down the different uh, varieties or elements of regionalism that have existed in the history of the idea of Europe. And in particular, what I do in the book is to take this distinction from nationalism studies um, between, you know, on the one hand, a kind of civic nationalism, and on the other hand, an ethnic cultural nationalism, and to apply that to Europe as a region to sort of say that in the history of, you know, the long history of the idea of Europe going all the way back to the medieval period, they've been both of these elements. They've been elements that are, that are kind of civic, and there've been elements that are ethnic and cultural. And then, you know, the crucial question becomes, well, what happens after 1945? And my argument is that those ethnic cultural components of European regionalism, the idea of Europe, don't just disappear after 1945. They continue and they influence what becomes the European Union itself. So that distinction between the civic kind of nationalism and the ethnic cultural side of things. So the idea of civic referring to things like laws and structures, a bit like the French idea or American idea of nationhood as opposed to an identity that's rooted in things like culture and language and a kind of shared sense of history. Is that the right kind of characterization? And race as well. I mean, I think we, especially in the history of the idea of Europe, I think we have to bring race into that. Now, I think it's important to emphasize, though, that if we look at the history of nations, you know, there has been a tendency sometimes to claim that some nations are defined in ethnic cultural terms and some are defined in civic terms. I think actually it's a little bit more complex than that, that in, you know, in the history of every uh, nationalism that there's ever been, you have both of these elements. So you mentioned France and the United States, which are sometimes thought of as being the closest thing to a purely civic nationalism. But I think it's fairly clear that, you know, if you take the United States, for example, it's fairly clear that there are also ethnic cultural elements of, of that nationalism too. So moving on, you, you talk about the idea of a created European identity, this idea of regionalism, and you draw on ideas like those of Benedict Anderson's, his his notion of the imagined community of people. But you also make the point throughout the book, as you just mentioned there, about the very fact that Europe ignored colonisation and the fact that Europe, or at least the founding members of the EU, were colonial powers. And this has been kind of airbrushed out of particularly early ideas about the EU as they emerged back in the 1950s, 1960s, etc. It's not just that Western European countries, you know, the original six member states of what became um, the EEC were former colonial powers. And that, I think, is, is you know, widely recognised, actually. The, the thing that is not recognised by pro-Europeans often is that the European Union itself began as a colonial project. One of the sort of key moments for me that really just changed a lot of the way I think about the history of the European Union was reading this book called Eurafrica by Pierre Hansen and Stefan Jonsson, which came out almost 10 years ago. It's an extraordinary book which shows how 
you know, at the beginning of the European project in the 1950s, part of the point, uh, you know, it's, it's not just that European integration intersected with the end of the colonial period, but that part of the point of European integration was for Belgium and France to consolidate their colonies in Central and West Africa at a time when they were no longer able to maintain them on their own. And in particular, what they needed was an injection of West German capital. This is part of what the European project was about in the 1950s. I call it the, you know, the EU's original sin, consciously making an analogy to the United States there. And what I find extraordinary is that, as I say, that book came out 10 years ago. It itself was building on earlier uh, scholarship on this. And my impression is that, um, you know, in the sort of policy world, you know, for example, among, you know, foreign policy think tanks, you know, that, that I've inhabited for the last, you know, uh, 15 years or so, this is all completely unknown. And so people, you know, kind of will say in a rather sort of naive kind of way that the EU is an anti-colonial project, apparently not knowing this history. So you make this point that the idea of Europe as a peace project, but in fact, a lot of Europe was continuing to wage wars, colonial wars, at the very time that they were saying in Europe, never again, and how the project was being born from the ashes of World War II. So I suppose that's that hypocrisy goes at the heart of your argument here, that you cannot ignore the colonial side of how Europe developed as an entity, as an idea. Exactly. And this is another good example of what I mentioned at the beginning about this tendency to mistake Europe for the world or this conflation of Europe and the world, right? Because, you know, from the Schumann Declaration onwards, there's this idea of renouncing war between European countries. Pro-Europeans tend to sort of mythologize this as what happened after 1945 was that Europe rejected war in general, but it didn't. You know, at these very critical moments, you know, for example, you know, when, you know, Schumann makes his declaration, France is fighting a brutal colonial war in Indochina. And then when the Treaty of Rome is signed in 1957, France is fighting a brutal colonial war in Algeria. So what, you know, what's very clear is that, you know, it, it wasn't that after 1945, um, Europeans rejected war. They just rejected war amongst each other. They they continued to fight colonial wars until they were exhausted or defeated. But then even in you know, the post-Cold War period, obviously, Europeans have been quite happy to use military force in all kinds of circumstances. It's just that they, you know, they've eliminated military force within Europe, which is something much more specific. So the, the idea of the Europe as a peace project is not a myth completely, but it's very partial. Moving on to more recent times, we've seen the rise of identity politics here. I'm thinking of figures like Marine Le Pen in France. We saw the controversy in the last European Commission about the establishment of a commissioner for the European way of life. I mean, what's your views on these developments? Do you think Europe is moving into more kind of a, of a cultural idea, a racially informed idea of itself? Yes, uh, in short, I, I do. And this is, you know, you asked at the beginning about what prompted me to write the book. In, in a way, this, this was the sort of political imperative, right? This is the reason I think this is not just, you know, historical kind of importance, but this is actually a kind of urgent political issue right now. Because I think during the last decade or so, but especially since the refugee crisis in 2015, there has been what I call the civilizational turn in the European project, which is this tendency to think in these more ethnic cultural ways about Europe. Now, what I'm challenging, though, because I think obviously everybody's aware of the rise of the far right in Europe, but there's been this tendency to think about that in a very kind of binary and I think too simplistic a way, which is that the far right in Europe are speaking on behalf of the nation against Europe. They're nationalists and they're uh, Eurosceptic. But this is, again, only half true, because if you look at the sort of discourse on the far right, 
you know, there is a nationalist element, but there's also a, a different uh, civilizational element, which is this tendency, you know, not just to speak on behalf of the nation against the idea of Europe, but to speak on behalf of a different idea of what Europe is. And in particular, this idea of European civilization, which is being threatened in all kinds of ways, partly by immigration, but partly also by the rise of other powers uh, elsewhere in the world, like China. And I think what's happened during the last decade or so, and as I say, especially since the refugee crisis in, in 2015, is that that discourse has, has kind of migrated from the far right to the centre right. You see centre right parties increasingly using that kind of civilizational kind of rhetoric. And so there's a way in which, you know, on the one hand, I think we have to think about the rise of the far right itself in member states and then the influence that that has on the European Union. But I think we also need to look at the way that those types of discourses are being you know, taken over by the centre-right. So there's, there's a way in which, if I can put it this way, the far-right doesn't need to actually win in order to win. It can win sort of indirectly if what happens is that the centre-right ends up adopting large elements of its rhetoric and its policies, which I think is, is what's happening, especially around these questions of you know, immigration and, and identity and Islam. And that brings me to my final point, which was going to be about next year. And we've got those European elections coming up. Issues of migration, as we heard earlier in our podcast, issues of identity are out there in Europe. Is this a new front now for the EU? You mentioned there that the possibility of the centre-right adopting the kind of rhetoric we see from the far-right. I mean, do you think we are seeing this shift to the right that many people have identified over the past few months? Yes, I think this has already happened to some extent. You, you already mentioned some of the elements of this. You know, in the European Commission led by Ursula von der Leyen, you know, from 2019 onwards, you have a European Commissioner for promoting the European way of life. whose job is to keep migrants out, you know, which makes very explicit this kind of what I call the civilizational turn because it suggests, well, it doesn't even suggest, it makes very explicit that migrants are a threat to the European way of life. You know, you've already had that to some extent. I think the really interesting question is what happens after the European elections next year with the next European Commission? And so I think there is this kind of question now about whether there is a something even more transformative happening, which is that, you know, historically, the EU has tended to be run, or at least this is the way I think of this, by a kind of a grand coalition of centre-right and, and, and the centre-left centre against the populist far-left and far-right. But as I just suggested, I think that's already started to sort of shift a little bit. And what may now happen, and it's very much an open question, and, and I'm not even sure exactly how this would work in practice, but I think there is a, you know, a question now about whether that old model of the sort of grand coalition is, is slightly giving way to a, a different kind of constellation where you have this increasing blurring between the centre-right and the far-right, a kind of mainstreaming and normalising of, of far-right ideas which means that actually the next European Commission would look quite different. It would actually be more a kind of a compromise between the far right and the centre right rather than a compromise between the centre left and, and the centre right. And, and then I think the, the really big question, I think a lot depends then on how pro-European centre left parties, let's take, say, the German Social Democrats, how they then respond to that, because They've been involved in, as I say, running the European Union for decades and decades. And there's a danger that they sort of get co-opted into, I think to some extent have already been co-opted into this kind of more civilizational EU. And I think the question becomes, how then do they respond if the far right has even more influence over the European Commission? Or do they are they willing to stand up and basically break with that tendency? Just a final point, and do you think it's entirely fair to say that the idea of the European way of life within the Commission is about keeping migrants out. 
I mean, a lot of people would say it's also about upholding rule of law within the EU. The EU has been very strict, for example, on Hungary and Poland and breaches of what they see as democratic standards. Is it entirely fair to say that that's the idea behind this concept? Well, no, it's complicated. And that, that commissioner's job isn't just migration. He does He's responsible for other things. That's true. And also the phrase the European way of life has a longer history. But I think actually that it kind of illustrates my argument about the shift that's taking place in the European Union, because there was a time when that phrase, the European way of life, was used by pro-Europeans, but it meant something very different. It basically meant, you know, the social market economy and the welfare states and things like that. In other words, it was a kind of socio-economic idea of what Europe stood for. My argument in the book is that, you know, as that's been basically hollowed out, the social market economy and the welfare state over the last couple of decades, you know, basically by, you know, what you might call the neoliberal turn in the European project, it's created this kind of void, which is now being filled by culture. And so then what I think has happened is that the way that the phrase the European way of life is used is now different than it was in the past. It doesn't mean, I think, anymore, this kind of socioeconomic model. It increasingly means something much more, much more ethnic cultural. We leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, Hans. Thank you. That's all we have for you on this episode of EU Confidential. Now, do follow our podcast on your favourite app so you're always up to date and never miss an episode. And we always like to hear from you, so drop us an email with feedback or ideas for topics and guests. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Suzanne Lynch here in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, and Diana Sturis, our senior audio producer. See you next week. 